This is James Coover with K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat in Southwind District with your Extension Crop Report. What makes a good ag land lease? Most land leases are verbal contracts between landlord and tenant. That is just an agreement of rental rates and payment dates. However, that leaves a lot of ambiguity and there are plenty of issues that can arise. On January 23rd, we are going to have a virtual and in-person program covering how to make a great land lease contract and also the laws that govern land leases. The program will be from 1 to 3 on Saturday, January 23rd at the Parsons Extension Center, or you can join by Zoom virtually. We'll have two speakers for this program. One is Chuck Adi, who has 39 years of extension experience and teaches a yearly class on creating great ag leases. We will also have Professor Roger McGowan from the Washburn School of Law, who specializes in ag law and will be covering not only lease laws, but also common legal issues that can occur. I will personally attest that these two are great speakers, and they're full of knowledge and energy. If you are a landlord or a tenant of crops or pasture, this is simply a program you don't want to miss. Please give your local Wildcat or Southland Extension office a call to register, or to be sent a Zoom link. So, what makes a good land lease? First of all, it needs to be a written contract. A written contract is meant and not in any way to be a front to trustfulness, which is why many landlords are worried about when a verbal contract has been in place for so long. A written contract is merely to lay out the terms, clear up any uncertainties, and to protect the relationship between the landlord and the tenant. A written contract will be different depending on what type of ground is leased, crop cash rent, crop share, or pasture cash rent are the most common. Any lease is going to have some general terms such as or how long should the lease be covered for, what happens if the land is sold or inherited, or that the land cannot be subleased. A contract should also have a section that covers what the land is intended to be used for, as in what crops can be planted or if hay can be baled. Of course, for pasture or crop cash rent, one section will cover what are the rental rates and when those rates will be paid. Now that we've covered the basic terms that are generally uncontested, a written contract should also cover the things that can become a disagreement. A crop share contract needs to cover who is covering what expense, like herbicides or lime, and at what ratio. A pasture contract can also cover who is going to pay for fence repair and who is responsible for taking care of noxious weeds. Any contract will also need to cover mineral rights, and for around here, this can also cover leasing to a wind development company. One of the biggest areas of issue is actually hunting rights. By Kansas law, a landlord can't hunt on leased ground or cut firewood, but at times they may want to reserve the right to do so. A written lease can spell this out and prevent any misunderstanding. We have blank written contracts at your local extension office, and these ideally need to be filled out and signed before the end of January. I would highly suggest that you get your contract started and then join us on January 23rd for our lease in law workshop before getting the contract signed the following week. If you have any questions about leasing or to register for the workshop, please give us a call at 620-724-8233. This has been James Coover with your Extension Crop Report. Next up, we'll have Wendy Powell, Livestock Production Agent for the Wildcat District. Hi, this is Wendy Powell, your Livestock Production Agent with the Wildcat Extension District. Some mornings, we're glad the ground is frozen, just so we're staying on top of the mud for a few hours. Today, I'd like to share a few ideas about what I call mud management. Layout is the key first step to permanent drainage solutions. 
place buildings, material storage, feeding areas, and shelters on higher ground. These areas will dry faster with an ideal slope between 4 and 6 degrees. Plants can help reduce mud. A healthy stand of vegetation can take up moisture, anchor soil to prevent erosion, and slow nutrient runoff. Compacted soil, such as from hoof traffic, has poor water infiltration, which means that liquids pool on the surface and run off instead of soaking into the ground. This is where we begin to have problems with nutrient runoff that leads to algae buildup in ponds, among other issues. In heavy traffic areas, where mud tends to accumulate, think gates, driveways, dry lots, consider building a high traffic pad. High traffic pads improve drainage and provide stabilization through the use of multiple layers of permeable geotextile fabric and rocks of various sizes. Ideally, these high traffic pads are located where there is not any vegetation or are compacted from frequent hoof traffic. Due to cost, it's rare that entire dry lot would be constructed as a high traffic pad. Rather, select specific areas within the dry lot to maximize slope of 6 degrees to help ensure that footing does not wash away. Some protocols for these high traffic pads involve removing at least 8 inches of topsoil, making the base level. If there is a good drainage point for water to go, then a drain pipe can be used, similar to a French drain system. A sheet of geotextile fabric is installed across the base of the pad. A 4-inch layer of crushed limestone is then added and then compacted with a vibratory plate compactor machine. Then another layer of geotextile fabric. All this topped with a 4-inch layer of footing like unwashed fine gravel or crushed bluestone and again compacted with the vibratory plate compactor. Alternative footing options are popular in our area. This is a fancy way of saying fill in the mud holes. Low areas can be leveled off using fine crushed gravel, sand, or organic matter. Of course, the material used will determine the resistance and washout potential. Gravel will be considerably more durable than the pile of hay off the feed truck. Taking preventative measures to manage mud can save time. Carefully choose where hay is stored and winter feeding sites. Bacteria thrive in mud, especially when organic materials are present, like manure, hay, or old feed. Problems like foot rot and scours run rampant in muddy conditions, even in low temperatures. Your local natural resource conservation service may have some financial assistance available for high traffic pads. For more information on building high traffic pads, give me a call at the Labette County Extension Office, 620-784-5337. Thanks, Wendy. And now, here's David Scrantz, Natural Resource and Diversified Ag Agent, with her report. This is the David Strauss, one of the Agriculture and Natural Resource Agents from the K-State Research and Extension Wildcat District of Crawford, Labette, Montgomery, and Wilson Counties with your K-State Research and Extension Report. As it gets closer to the first set of spring lambs and kids arriving, it is important for producers to make sure they have all the supplies they may need to care for the lambs and kids when they arrive. One supply that is very important to have on hand is frozen colostrum or colostrum replacer. This is very important to have in case a doe or ewe does not have enough colostrum to feed her kids or lambs or there is a weak or orphaned kid or lamb that needs to be bottle fed. Colostrum, also referred to as liquid gold, is the first milk does and ewes produce. 
It is thick and yellowish in color. Colostrum is nutrient-rich and, most importantly, contains maternal antibodies. When born, kids and lambs do not have any antibodies to protect them from disease, but the antibodies they absorb from colostrum help develop their immune system and protect them against disease. If kids and lambs do not get colostrum, their chance of survival is very low. It is very important to make sure kids and lambs receive colostrum right after they are born. The antibodies found in colostrum are large proteins and when born, the kids or lambs' small intestines have openings to absorb these proteins. Kids and lambs can only absorb these antibodies within the first 24 to 36 hours after they are born and they absorb them best within the first few hours after birth. After 24 hours, their ability to absorb the antibodies in colostrum is very minimal. This is why colostrum is one of the most important supplies to have. If you bottle feed kids or lambs, they should consume at least 10% of their body weight in colostrum. While colostrum from the kids or lambs dam is the most ideal source, frozen or fresh colostrum from a doe or ewe in your herd is the next best option, but colostrum replacer will work as well. If using colostrum replacer, make sure to follow the mixing and storing instructions on the package. If you are using colostrum from a doe or ewe that you do not know the history of or that has tested positive for CAE or OPP, the colostrum should be heat treated before feeding to kids or lambs to prevent disease. It is also important to remember that colostrum should not be warmed up in the microwave because the high temperature will kill the antibodies in the colostrum. From the K-State Research and Extension Wildcat District, this has been a Dave Strauss with your K-State Research and Extension Report. Thank you, Adavin. And now, here is Jesse Gilmore with his report. With K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District, this is Jesse Gilmore bringing you this week's edition of the Hort Report. It's almost time to germinate the seeds of cool season crops to prepare them for transplanting. When saving seeds from previous growing seasons, it is important to label the seeds with their species, date collected, and their variety. Seeds should be stored in a cool, dry place in order to preserve their shelf life. Most seeds will keep for two to three years, but some seeds, specifically those in the carrot family, clock in at one to two years. If you're unsure of how viable your seeds are, do a paper towel test. Put 10 seeds in a moist paper towel, put the paper towel into a plastic bag with a few holes poked into it, and put the plastic bag in a warm area like on top of the refrigerator. After one and two weeks, count and add the number of sprouted seeds. That gives you your germination rate. To start the seeds, you must first determine the number of weeks before transplanting that you need to germinate them. This will differ for every crop. Cool season crops should be germinated in the latter half of January to be transplanted near the end of March. Cool season crops include broccoli, cauliflower, cabbage, and onions. Warm season crops and most annual flowers are transplanted around May 1st. NC State published an article called Starting Plants from Seed that outlines some of the most common garden transplants 
and when they need to be started relative to their transplant dates. That article is no longer available, but you can find the information from the article in the weekly horticulture newsletter from this past week, available on the horticulture and natural resources page of the KSU website. Very specific conditions must be met in order for seeds to germinate successfully in the winter months. Garden soil should not be used for seed transplants as our soils are too clayey and may carry disease organisms. Opt instead for transplanting media made specifically for seed germination. Some seeds require darkness to germinate, while others require light. Most seeds will germinate in either, but once seedlings emerge, all will require light to continue growing. Often, winter sun won't be adequate for the needs of the seedlings, so supplemental light will also be required. LED lights are recommended over fluorescent lights due to their higher energy efficiency, which is important when the lights should be run for 16 hours a day. As far as heat goes, many plants, especially solanaceous crops, will not germinate if the temperature is too low. You can get around this by finding warmer places in the house to germinate the seed, but a heating mat is recommended. Once the seed has germinated, take the new seedlings off the heating mat and store them in a cooler environment, 65 to 70 degrees warm during the day and 55 to 60 degrees warm at night. This will help keep vegetable transplants from growing too leggy. For more information on today's topic, contact your local Extension office. I can be reached at 620-724-8233 or by email at jr637 at ksu.edu. Once again, this has been Jesse Gilmore bringing you this week's Port Report. Thank you, Jesse, and thank you for listening to K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District Ag Team on KGGF 690 Radio.